Why is COVID spreading so fast in the US compared to the rest of the world? Why aren't respirators the solution? Why are red blood cells the key to everything? Why are diabetics obese? What is effort-based emotional management and why is it so important? How can you tell if you are carb addicted and what can you do about it? Welcome to the Superheroes Podcast. I am Jono Proudfoot, and in this episode, I chat to Dr. Robert Sivers to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic and why it is hurting those with chronic conditions like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and high blood pressure. And we are live. Welcome to the Superheroes Podcast, the show that teaches you how to be a hero just by cooking yourself some supper. I'm Jono Proudfoot, and today we have... Dr. Robert Sivers in Florida to get his view on the corona pandemic and a whole bunch of other stuff. Welcome, Robert. Hey, Jono. Thank you very much. Um, if For those of you that can see me, I'm camouflaged in my COVID camo. My blonde beard is is my camo. So, uh, But it's great to be on. It's great to talk with you. I always admired your work and um, uh, your insight into this really challenging topic that's just emerging. So thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, cool, man. Um, so, Robert, last time we met, uh, I was told that you were the emperor of the Bariatric Society of America. Um, since then, you've launched a YouTube channel called Carb Addiction Doc, which is great. Um, and you have, I think it was before we met, but you had launched the JSAPA. Can you just tell us, like, in a nutshell, what it is that you actually do for, for a living? Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. It's kind of a parallel three three lines three lanes the first lane is that i used to be 300 pounds uh, in america we talk about pounds it's uh, I, I was really morbidly obese and i had i didn't know how to lose that weight and discovered certain aspects about myself which we're going to go into a little bit for everybody this is 20 years ago and i lost successfully lost uh, about 90 pounds but during that time i also understood that um, as a surgeon we were extremely good at getting people to lose weight. I mean, we start counting at the 50, 60 kilo mark. Uh, it's kind of a failure before that. that. That's massive weight loss. So we're really, really good at getting people to lose weight. And then the question is, okay, why do they gain their weight back? Why do 85% of those people gain their weight back? And I realized that, that we understood how to lose weight, but we didn't understand how, why people get became obese in the first place and what they had to do, what changes they had to make to their way of life in order to keep that weight off, what the cause was. So uh, I did a deep dive into that. And the second part I went into in the laboratory, uh, I have a PhD, and it's actually in, in, in liver transplant immunology. But the interesting part, and this is in the, in the early 90s, 1990s, um, before we really knew that carbohydrates were even a disease. We thought they were necessary for survival and everything else. In fact, we believed that carbohydrates were essential to a liver as it was transplanted. So my work was to look at inflammation, and this is important to the topic, inflammation yeah. as we rapidly introduced sugar into the liver. And we could quantify and visibly see the damage that that sugar did to the blood vessels and to the cells of the liver. We didn't expect the vascular injury. And it's, in, it's amazing how this has come full circle as we're now under quarantine with COVID that exactly the same injury is in large part one of the defining factors uh, of a easy course versus a really tough, hard 
complicated course yeah. with the virus. So, um, you know, that's come around. But my understanding of obesity and my understanding of metabolic disease, diabetes, came from that work in the laboratory. Yeah. And then my um, understanding of the psychology of obesity came from a personal view and from working with my patients who successfully lost weight, but but still were, were obese. And and that's the big challenge. It doesn't matter what your body looks like. This is always fat. Yeah. Yeah. That's And that's, yeah, absolutely critical. So South Africans are like dying to know um, what is happening in America. I know Trump wants to beat China at everything, but perhaps not this. And he is, and, and America is like statistically miles ahead of everyone in terms of infection. Like what is, what is going on? In, in the States? Yeah, it's an election year. That's what's going on. And uh, like anything in the US, elections are a show. And we've got this nasty little actor. It's almost like the, the Joker in the um, Batman movies that's come onto the scene that's interfering, you know, the success that um, Batman has with his business. And the Joker at this stage is something horrible called COVID. And it's interfering mm. with um, the election process. And the more we try to ignore it and try to banish it from the election process, um, it's quite amazing how, how blind we have to be to that to work on re-election. And that's really what the battle is here. It's politics. It's got nothing to do with illness. And yet we are probably in the worst healthcare crisis that we've been in, in this country. I, by now, you know, everyone talks about the, the 1918 uh, uh, flu Spanish, epidemic. Yeah. Spanish, we, we're well beyond that. We're well, yeah. well, well beyond that. Um, because we really are only seeing the tip of the iceberg. And it's the, we, we're oblivious to that part of the iceberg that's below the water. Our numbers are just the tip of the iceberg. So, so I wanted, yeah. can I ask you about the numbers? Because um, I was listening to Elon Musk the other day, and he was saying that that the hospitals are in such a bad way, uh, and that that they're overstating um, the amount of corona deaths because they, if they're treating people with corona, um, they actually get a subsidy, um, and 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 they're saying like the cause of death. If someone has symptoms, they're saying that that's the cause of death, even though it might not be. Um, is, that, is there any truth to that? No, there's, there's no truth to that whatsoever. Is there, in any system, is there abuse? Of course there is. Of course people are going to pad some of the numbers. But there, there are two issues with that. The first one is there's massive bailouts uh, to the hospital systems. You know, we're talking about $835 million to Dignity Health. We're talking about $700 million uh, to HCA. We're talking about $535 million bailout to Tenant Healthcare. These are the big commercial healthcare systems. So uh, they're swimming in money. They, they, let me tell you, they're not... They're not down in terms of money. They are to a certain extent, but they're solvent. Um, yeah. The other thing is that these numbers are being reported by doctors. And despite the fact that we've been very heavily neutered as professionals in this country, we've become employees, which is a real problem when business takes over healthcare. Uh, and I guess that's the biggest issue. We've become neutered as physicians. We are still the people reporting this. And then the final part is that while a lot of people are dying in hospitals, the majority of people aren't. Um, you know, if you look at the largest source of deaths, they're occurring either at home or uh, in in uh, old age homes, that kind of thing. Um, for example, in Minnesota, over 75% of all their reported deaths happen in nursing homes. So, um, you know, you can't ignore the numbers. It's just a matter of inconvenience uh, to certain folks. And um, 
I, I don't think that anybody knows what the true metrics are of infection or yeah. of of deaths. We just we just have no idea. But really, it's not about the numbers. Mm. You don't have to be a mathematician to know how serious this disease is. And that's mm. the problem, is that we get we get stuck in the mathematics of something to be able to think it through rather than be emotive about it to a certain extent. And I can tell you as a healthcare worker, as a physician, um, there's no way that I want this disease. At least I don't want it now. Um, yeah. And over time, we will know more about it and we'll be able to protect ourselves a little bit more. And there are a few things that we can do as individuals and as a society to delay and disperse the rate at which this disease goes through our community. Mm-hmm. I do think that it, over time, pretty much everybody is going to be exposed to this disease. But if you think about it, our first cases occurred in early February, possibly um, because we didn't measure them in early Jan- in mid January or late January, we're now yeah. four months down the road, and uh, you know we've got eighty two thousand people dead and uh, one and a half million people infected, as far as we know, and those are yeah. an undercall of the are probably an undercall of the numbers. So <clears throat> the issue is the rate at which this has become infected. You know, in two thousand and ten. Um, there was a really bad H1N1 flu virus, and they estimate that close to a million people died over the course of a two to two to three year period of that virus, directly or indirectly. And nobody even knew that statistic because yeah. it occurred over time. And yeah. here it's the compression and the yeah. severity that's the issue. So if we can elongate this virus, we're not going to get rid of it. We're not yeah. going to get rid of it, at least in the foreseeable future. If we can stretch out the number of cases that come to the hospitals and don't overwhelm the care system. If I'm, as a doctor, I'm taking care of 20 patients on ventilators, I'm not paying you as much. It's just the reality of the numbers. I'm not paying you as much attention as I would if I have one or two people on on a vent. It's just, that's just the reality. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, If your resources are spread thin, and you're exhausted, you don't take care of people as well as you could if you're rested and you're taking care of a one-on-one situation. So if we can elongate that, we allow us to catch up as human beings, not even as doctors. So that's the first thing. The second thing is over time, I want to be on the back end of this curve, not the front end if I can possibly be, because every single day we're learning more. Remember, uh, five months ago, we knew nothing about this disease, zero. And every day we're learning more about how this disease works and what it does. And we're now able to meet it at various places. For example, ventilators are far less important than oxygenation. Ventilators is the mechanics of breathing for your lungs when your lungs aren't working properly. And we realize, well, that's a piece of it. Uh, Part of it now, the the bigger part is what's happening in your blood vessels. Notice the connection. So we're discovering more and more about how that works. And, uh, you know, we've, just it's it's like a puzzle that we're putting together. So I want to get my disease, hopefully not, but when I do get it, when we have a huge body of knowledge. Mm. And then the other, the third factor is uh, what can we do as we understand how this disease works? What can we do to shift the likelihood? It's a percentage game. Shift the likelihood yeah. that as an individual, I'm going to have a milder course. I'm going to be one of those people that gets infected, gets tested, and said, oh, you got the antibody, and I didn't even know I had the disease. 
Yeah. So how do we get that? Right. And and that's so again, I you know, people are gonna say, well, he just beats the same old drum, but there are there's enough information out there to understand how COVID works. And more and more, I just was looking at something yesterday or the day before. Basically, what COVID is, a virus, it's a think of it like a soccer ball. And the soccer ball is fat. It's a layer of fat, okay? Um, and that's what the membrane is. On the inside, it's got one thing, and that is its reproducing organ, DNA, which is its reproducing little strand of DNA. Think of it almost like a, like a sperm or like an egg. It's this little capsule with reproductive material in the, in the inside, and it has to get inside of cells to replicate. The got way it. it does that, it's got these little prongs called um, proteins, and those proteins are couplers. If you think on the back end of a train or, the, or, or a tow bar on a, uh, where you're towing your boat, that's what those couplers are. And obviously, like a tow bar, you've got to have the, the ball has to fit the socket. That's basically what we're looking at. And that's a virus. It's, it's such a simple form of life. Um, so the first part is to eradicate the virus. If you can do anything that melts fat. Soap does that. Alcohol does that. Those are the two best things. That's why we talk about hand washing. Those are the best things to to get rid of it. But some you also, water. Yeah. Some, exactly right. I mean, those are the <laughs> things that melt fat. Uh, so anything that melts fat destroys this virus. Uh, mm. Just for folks at home, that's the way to go. You don't need anything. The, these disinfectants and stuff. Yeah, they work. But soap and water works absolutely fine. As does alcohol. Um, mm. Alcohol surface is not in your body. So okay. the next thing, is, right? <laughs> the next thing to know, as far as we're aware, and this is new information, I'm not a hundred percent certain of it. So this needs to be corroborated. But that little protein gets deformed uh, uh, by certain things. It's, think of it like a uh, like a knot, uh, like a ball of cotton uh, or a ball of string that's been crumpled up. And if you take that ball of string and you put some piece of paper in it, you can distort the shape of the string. Well, exactly yeah. the same thing happens with that protein. And one of the things that we know distorts both the protein, the, the coupler, and the socket because both are proteins. You've got the receptor and the, uh, and the thing are both proteins. The thing that we realize distorts that is the insertion of sugar. When glucose and carbohydrates get inserted into these proteins, it's called glycosylation which glycosylation means the addition of sugar to these molecules, it distorts the shape of the protein. And if the two don't quite match, and you get something that distorts it, that increases the match, now you get a tighter coupling, you get a a greater likelihood that that virus can enter the cell and cause damage in the cell or use the cell as a host to, to replicate in because it, it hijacks the host's own DNA reproduction system to reproduce itself. That's what it does. That's so how you're it breeds. St- so you're saying that that in this case, and this is alleged, not like absolute yet, but but that there's that it looks like sugar in the blood basically is like the lubricant to get the, the trends connected. Yeah. Basically. It distorts okay. the shape of the protein enough that they can couple. And we know now that sugar binds to the surface of that COVID molecule, the protein molecules, and distorts their shape. There is a fancy name, but it's called the ACE2 receptor, yes, which yeah, is okay. a receptor to which this protein binds. And it almost most cells, almost all cells have an ACE2 receptor. What else is the ACE2 receptor there for? Uh, for it manages blood pressure and hypertension and 
you hear in the ketogenic community, we talk a lot about salt, salt, salt. Salt is important for your food. Well, salt works that way as well uh, in terms of uh, using the ACE2 receptor. A lot of our blood pressure medications are ACE2 re receptor antagonists, and they also use that receptor to alter um, uh, the size and shape of your blood vessel cells, blood vessel cells. Those ACE2 receptors are on certain cells in the lung called the type 2 pneumocytes, lungs that um, help us to breathe. So that's the entry point of this virus into the lung. Now, pneumonia is a virus or a bacteria that causes inflammation and infection in the lung. And that was the, it's an obvious, well-known pathway. When you get pneumonia, mm. that you see, and it all just clogs up the lungs, and you get this production of mucus, you get this reaction by your body's uh, protective systems where there's this war going on in your lungs and it produces pus as the soldiers die while they're fighting the virus um, yeah. and they clog up your lungs. And that is pneumonia. And originally, now originally is a few months ago, we thought yeah. that that pneumonic process was the dominant way in which this virus worked. Yes. It was pneumonia and therefore the charge was on to get ventilators because the way you treat pneumonia is with ventilation, where you need to get oxygen into the bloodstream and exchange it in the lungs. So oxygen goes into the little sacs in the lung and the blood comes by and picks up the oxygen. Now, if you've got this layer of mucus and pus, the oxygen can't penetrate that. So what the right. ventilator does is it force feeds that oxygen into the lungs. So if this was pneumonia, the ventilators would work. But we found, you know what, it's we're right. ventilating people and it's not happening. We can't get oxygen into their blood, into, the, into their blood. So despite the fact that we were able to breathe for these people, we weren't able to put oxygen into the blood to get oxygen to the tissues. So we stepped back and we said, okay, what's happening? And we found yeah. that the virus was entering through these pneumocytes, also through the eyes and other, uh, uh, other methods, but it was getting into the bloodstream. Yeah. And when you hear about the early effect, the, the early symptoms is fever is one of them. Well, fever is a sign of your immune system reacting within the bloodstream against this virus. That's where you release certain uh, um, protective mechanisms or protective molecules. And part of what they do is they create, they create warmth, they create fever. That's one of the ways the immune system works. And that happens when bacterial viruses get into your bloodstream. You've heard of fever and chills, yeah, for example, yeah. malaria. That's when the virus flushes into the bloodstream and you get this fever and these chills and then it goes away. Exactly the same thing for COVID. So let's take it into the bloodstream. Now, on the red blood cells in our bloodstream, there are these same ACE2 receptors. What's interesting about the human red blood cells is there's no reason for COVID intellectually to go into the red blood cells. Why? Because red blood cells are unique in humans. They have no nucleus. They do, they, they're dead cells. They so you mean they can't reproduce, okay. Correct. Yeah. So COVID cannot reproduce in there. But it's a bizarre thing that COVID now attacks this, not because it should be attacking it, because there's a, there's a benefit to COVID going in there. It's kind of a byproduct. These ACE2 receptors are there, it latches onto this receptor, and it gets into the red blood cells and causes damage within the red blood cells. That's the link to a certain extent to malaria. I don't understand the process that well. I don't think anybody does, but it's got some, we understand the mal malaria process very well where the mal malaria bacteria, the uh, plasmodium, uh, feeds off the hemoglobin and the iron in, in the cells and we can measure that iron. Well, when we measure now, and you see, this is why time is so important. 
One of the things that some sharp doctors did when we send off these batteries of tests, we found it in the sickest patients, their ferritin level was going up. What's, what's ferritin? Ferritin is the release of iron into the bloodstream. So right. when you, one of the ways you do that is if you disrupt the hemoglobin molecule, hemoglobin molecule is four little molecules stuck around an iron molecule. And when you disrupt that, the iron gets released. And we could measure the iron binding in the, in the bloodstream, and you measure that through measuring something called ferritin. Ferritin just, ferrous means iron. So what we found is in the sickest of patients that you couldn't ventilate, their ferritin levels were going up. Why? So we looked at their red blood cells, and their red blood cells were destroyed. Wow. So the hemoglobin was being destroyed, and it is a direct marker of COVID, probably just collateral damage. Yeah. You know, when two gangs are having a fight and some person, some innocent person is walking down the road and they get shot, that's kind of probably what's happened with the red blood cells. So the question is, why? Well, we know that the red blood cells have these ACE2 receptors. But we also, from our work in diabetes, understand that sugar latches onto those ACE2, those protein molecules, changes the shape and yeah. makes them very attractive to the COVID as a tight binding receptor. So the more glycosylated your hemoglobin is, the more sugar, because the, the globulin of the hemoglobin is also a protein. And again, this is speculation. It's not, I don't have absolute proof, but uh, we know that the more glycosylated your hemoglobin is, the more uh, tightly that COVID binds to those red blood cells. And what is, what is diabetes? It is where you have a much higher percentage of glycosylated hemoglobin. Hemoglobin A1C means sugar that's attached to the hemoglobin molecule. So sugar is integral to making the human body cells look sexy to the COVID molecule, if that makes sense. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I'm using lay speak, but that's as far as my surgical yeah. brain goes. So yeah. please understand that these are pathway speculations. The scientists, the biochemists are going to work out the exact pathway. So right. I don't want to be as precise as we can be in a few months time about this mm -hmm. process. But we do know absolutely now that it's more important when someone gets sick to get oxygen into their bloodstream yeah. than it is to ventilate their lungs. And in mm -hmm. fact, if you're trying to force oxygen through the lungs, but it's not being picked up, then you can actually damage the lungs. So one of the things that we've realized from the New York people, and this is so important for the lay people out there, if you've been exposed to COVID, if you've been sick, monitor your temperature, monitor your taste and your smell sensation. But the single, you see, if you go to the, the emergency room, you go to the, the hospital and you've got a fever, they'll say, okay, you've got COVID, just monitor yourself at home. How the hell do I monitor myself? The most <laughs> important way to monitor yourself, if you can, is with something called an O2 saturation monitor. In the US, I think in South Africa, you got them as well. It's a little thing that you got on the finger. If you've ever been in an operating room, it's that little thing that makes a red light and it yes. measures the amount of oxygen in your bloodstream, in your tissues. Yeah. And even when that number, the typical number at sea level is about 97, 96, 97%. Um, it's the percentage of oxygen being carried in your blood. Uh, okay. Got if it. that number, if you've got that little machine on there, and your number goes down. Let's say you, you check it on 97, 97, 97. One day I come along, and before I even feel sick, maybe I've had a little bit of a, a fever, but my number is now 92, 91. Get your butt into the hospital right away, right away. Because what's happening there is that virus is attacking your red blood cells, and you need oxygen. So what we've realized now is instead of ventilating people, instead of mechanically 
putting pressure in their lungs, what they need is an increase in the amount of oxygen in their bloodstream. Because what that might, you go up to, let's say 5,000 feet, you go up to Denver, and your yeah. oxygen level goes down. It gets into the 80s. I know mm. when I go to visit my in-laws in Denver, it's 5,000 to mile high. Uh, 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 5,000 feet, I don't know how many meters that is. My O2 saturation goes down by 10 yeah. points. Right, that's normal. That's why runners train at elevation. Well, mm. what happens is that same uh, uh, oxygen is not available to your cells then. And that's why you get so short of breath. And the issue is not the lungs mechanically. There's a little issue there, but the bigger issue is you're just out of breath. So it's hypoxia or lack of oxygen that is what COVID is doing. Now, we've just discovered that. We're, we're mm. figuring this one out. So therefore, you want to provide oxygen is more important than ventilation. And it's Got the it. provision of oxygen. Now, the other part that's happening in the blood vessels, and this is just what we're learning about, because there's another factor is we're getting inflammation of the cells that line the blood vessels. Remember, we talked about those ACE2 receptors that it's, function yeah. with blood pressure. Well, the entire, all the cells, the endothelial cells that line the blood vessels, they all use that ACE2 receptor to modify their narrowness and their wideness to control blood pressure. And it's mediated through the renin angiotensin system, which is your salt system that manages blood fluid and blood volume. Well, we know my work in the laboratory, my PhD, was looking at inflammation of those cells. And when those cells get inflamed, they, they go from being flat like fried eggs to little balls, and you can get blood clots and things forming there because now they're exposing the underlying lining of the blood, of the blood membrane. So if you look at this wall here, the wall's nice and smooth. If I punch a hole in the wall, now it's a rough area that mm. you want to come and fix with some spackle or something like that to smear it over there. That's the injury that occurs in blood vessels with diabetes. That is diabetes, yeah. where a little clot forms there. Okay? Well, in people who are insulin resistant, you've got inflammation of your blood vessels. And yeah. now you've also got COVID sticking to those, blood, those cells in your blood vessels. And they're forming those little clots. So the other thing we're seeing in COVID patients is necrosis of tissue. So they're getting a blockage of blood vessels to their small tissues. They're losing their toes. They're losing their legs. They're losing a lot of the organs that are supplied by these tiny micro vessels, capillaries, that get blocked off. That is an identical disease to diabetes. Different different initiating factor, but it's an identical process to what we see in diabetics who lose all of their organs. It's a vascular disease. And we're seeing that with COVID. Again, what's the mediating factor? What causes that? What aggravates that inflammation? Sugar. Well, we know it's, it's sugar. And it's sugar based on insulin resistance. So what does insulin resistance mean? Normally, let's say um, you, I, I eat once a day, maybe twice a day. So let's say I eat an apple. That apple goes into my bloodstream. Uh, as I eat that apple, it triggers insulin release. Mm. And insulin's job is to rapidly get the sugar from that apple. Now, an apple, oh, but an apple's so healthy. Well, an apple has about 25 grams of sugar, more sugar than I eat in a week. Okay. So that's like a Coke, yeah? That's a that's Coke. A Coke. Same, it's, no, Coke's a little bit more. Coke's about 39 to 40 grams, but it's okay. still a boatload of sugar mm. that rushes into your, let's take the Coke. You drink a Coke. Oh, okay. Half okay, you drink a Coke. Half a Coke, right. But let's say you drink a Coke. That's 40 grams of 40 grams of, of carbohydrate going very rapidly into your bloodstream. But if I'm insulin sensitive, as that as I'm drinking that Coke, that um, 
my senses pick up that sugar and they start getting ready for that sugar coming to my bloodstream. So it's not like my sugar goes screaming up. As the sugar starts to enter my bloodstream, my body's ready for it. And the insulin triggers all the cells in my body, predominantly the liver, to suck up that sugar. So wow. I've got, again, it's a receptor, it's a protein receptor, insulin couples with it and allows the sugar to enter the cell. Now, and then the cell uses a little bit, stores a little bit as glycogen, which is the storage form of sugar, and yeah. any excess gets very rapidly, particularly in the liver, turned to fat, and then gets shipped out to my fat cells where it gets stored for a long time, okay? And the body does that very readily so that your blood sugar doesn't even go up a lot when you're insulin sensitive. Mm. However, if you're bombarding your body with sugar all the time, if you're drinking, like when I was fat, I drank literally a case of Coke a day. Now I've got this incoming sugar all the time. And at some point, a critical threshold happens where I overwhelm that system. And my cells are taking up all the sugar, particularly my liver cells, and the machinery is breaking down. And mm. that machinery, when that, when that fat clogs up in my, in my liver cells, it's not the fat that we see, it's fat little molecules clogging up the liver cells, they affect the cell. So the cell says, look, self-preservation here, and the way the cell preserves itself is to down-regulate the insulin receptors so that insulin doesn't have its effect, so it reduces the rate of entry of sugar into the blood, into the cells of your body. That's what yeah. insulin resistance. So basically, the cells are saying, hey, I need to protect myself. Stop insulin. You're not going to have an effect. I'm not going to take up the sugar anymore. And so when you still, the blood. Yeah. Correct. So then what happens is the sugar goes. So that's called insulin resistance. Now, if you can produce a lot of insulin, your pancreas says, no, 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 screw you cells. Here's more insulin. Do your job. So it kind mm. of wackadoodles the cells to force them to take that up. And those people, they can walk past a donut or a can of Coke and gain five pounds because they're obesogenic. No matter how resistant they are, they can convert sugar to fat. So there, the, the sugar doesn't really build up tremendously in their bloodstream. On the other hand, when um, you reach a capacity where you cannot produce any more insulin and your cells are resistant to that, now what you said becomes true, the sugar builds up in your bloodstream. And we call that uh, prediabetes or then diabetes as it like causalates the lining cells of the blood vessels plus the red blood cells. And guess who comes along and says, hey, party time, COVID. COVID, okay. And, and so that's the issue over there. That's where this happens. Now, we doctors also, because it's archaic in terms of our belief just to, just to add a little piece to the pie that, that is something that we're still doing and I really think we should stop doing. Um, uh, the belief by most doctors is that the human body, particularly the sick human body, needs sugar. So as soon as a sick patient comes into the, into the ER, what we do is we put an IV into them, an intravenous vein. And what's typically, it's dextrose, it's glucose. So we feed them sugar. And, and, and the, the thing, for over a decade, I have never, ever given any of my sickest surgical patients sugar. And they survive absolutely fine. Why? Because the liver produces enough sugar. But the liver produces sugar at a very low level. So the information to physicians is please, 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 please. Even if someone is a diabetic, you don't have to use sugar. We can check your blood sugar all the time. If you're afraid of blood sugar is going to go low, you can measure that. We've got CGMs that give us measurements every five minutes. So you won't go low. 
And I've never, ever seen somebody go low if because they weren't consuming sugar. The only time you go low is if you overdose on insulin. Okay? So, <clears throat> so the sorry, second part, let me just, sorry, let me just get yeah, one other yeah, thing yeah. out there. The <laughs> same principle works for people in the street. Okay. Why are you stuffing yourself with sugar and starch? Going to make you insulin resistant, even to a certain degree. So when we look at the people get the worst outcome from this disease, it is diabetics, particularly type 2 diabetics, obese people, and people with cardiovascular disease, which is really a function. All of those together are called metabolic syndrome. And if you take metabolic syndrome backwards, the eye of the needle is insulin resistance. And when insulin resistance allows a slight rise in blood sugar, not even to ridiculous numbers, those are the people that are more likely to get severe disease. So what can you do in the street? There's not much you can do. Monitor your O2 sat, monitor your temperature. But please, please, please stay away from sugar, mm. sugar and starch. Because if you can protect yourself by being, uh, even if you don't become completely sensitive, if you can lower your blood sugar by 10 or 20 points, restore some of that mechanism, not only is it healthy globally, but your risk when you get the virus, and I said when you get the virus, is yeah. so much lower. The, I mean, that's that's amazing. And just so you know, like the comments that are coming here, like people are stoked. They're also like very happy with the information you provided and a couple uh, confused about your accent. But he is Cape Tonian, but uh, living abroad. Um, but you said something the other day in a, in a video about viral load. Could you touch on that quickly? Right. So I, I think that's a very important concept. In fact, I'm pleased you brought that up because... Your immune system wants to contain this virus, where it is. I'll, I'll give you an example. The After 9-11, when in America, that's a big deal when those planes hit the Twin Towers and there were domestic terrorist attacks. What we did, rightly or wrongly, is we took the war outside of the U.S. We took the mm -hmm. war to Iraq. We took it to Afghanistan. So we were fighting the wars there and preventing, reducing the risk that war was going to come home to the motherland. Okay, in exactly the same way, your body does the same thing. The place you want to defend against the virus is at its entry point. Its entry point is the mouth, the nose, the eyes, any cuts or breaks in your skin. Those are the entry points. So if you wage the war there, the rest, the internal parts of your body, the, in the important parts of your body are protected from the virus. And if only a little bit gets in, then your and your host immune system, your your immune system is ready. The soldiers are ready to go. They can protect it in your mouth, in your throat, in your nose, in your eyes. But if you get a huge load of virus that goes in, particularly droplet spread, and we know that this is more an airborne virus, not a droplet spread virus, and that's also an important concept. So this whole six foot thing is crazy. Two meters is too short. If you cough on a, if you're up in the Transvaal in the winter and you cough, you see that cloud of vapor going out. It's much more than two meters. That's what we have to look at. That's what you're walking through. That air is holding virus. Uh, we thought it was droplets spread like the flu. It's not. It's aerosolized. And the difference is the droplets hang out for a few seconds and drop down because they're heavy. Aerosolized stuff stays in the air for a long time. So if you're walking behind somebody, even maybe 10 meters behind somebody, you walk through their cloud of air. And if you live in the Transvaal in the winter, all you have to do is blow out that vasum, that, that cloud yeah. of, of, and you can see it and it hangs out. So the point is that if you, let's say I coughed on a surface, I coughed on this desk, and 
10 minutes later, you come along and you touch that and you get a few viruses and you put your hand in your mouth. <clears throat> That's a small viral load. And your immune system says, uh, um, Jono's insulin sensitive and boom, they contain that. And you, get, you may get a little bit sick in your mouth, but you're done. If, however, I cough on you and you've got this huge amount of virus, or as a surgeon, I'm busy doing a tracheostomy, which is where you're putting an artificial breathing tube in, and that, or I'm intubating somebody, and that patient coughs, and you get this splatter of mm. the sickest patient, this massive load. Now it gets see, into yeah. my mouth, but it just rapidly, it just tsunamis through my body. Mm. And it's just too big a load for my body to be able to contain. And the danger with this virus is once it gets into your bloodstream, it does most of its damage in the bloodstream. And that's really what you're trying to defend against mm. is the bloodstream disease. So viral load is a large part. And that's why social isolation is such an important thing. I'd much rather get my virus from touching something than from breathing in somebody else's stuff right away. Does that make sense? Yeah. Got it. Um, and and so I want to, so there's one question that's come up that I think you can settle because um, you were talking about sugar and, and I really want to get into carb addiction and how, you know, you, you basically your greatest competitor as a surgeon because it's very exciting for me. But um, th there's a question about sugar. Someone said, oh, but fructose is not all sugars are bad. So can you just touch on, I mean, fructose in particular, I disagree with that, but I'd love to hear your, okay. your take. You know, we can disagree and believe what we want to. The science is this. Uh, and, and I'll just give you some of the work that I personally did. Uh, in, the, uh, in the lab, we took livers. So we harvested livers. Uh, we had um, rat livers, pig livers, and human livers. So it was all rat we had human livers. So we did this in three different models, uh, ramping it up to humans. And what we did is we took a liver, and we isolated the liver first. And we infused sugar into that liver. We infused, I actually infused four different things, glucose, galactose, and fructose, which are the three monosaccharides, the three primary sugars. Most people know about fructose and glucose. A lot of people don't know about galactose, which is the one primarily found in dairy products, okay? Uh, okay. And um, they typically occur together. So glucose and fructose almost always occurs together. Fructose really doesn't occur in isolation, except in artificial things, like certain Cokes and that kind of thing. But fructose and glucose are usually combined Galactose and glucose are usually combined in milk products, and glucose and glucose are usually combined in something called maltose. But <clears throat> fructose and glucose are the things we find in raw sugar. So it's usually a combination. Your gut separates the two. So don't ever think that you're consuming fructose by itself. It's almost always fructose and glucose. However, when I infused each of those into the liver, each of those caused the injury. Right. And take a, take a guess which caused the earliest and worst injury. Gram for gram, the same. Fructose. Fructose. And, and you know why? Because fructose does not activate insulin. Think about that, okay? So what we're yeah. talking about is the concentration of sugar in the bloodstream. And if insulin is triggered most commonly by glucose, and insulin is the most responsive, even under insulin-resistant conditions, to glucose in terms of removing glucose from the bloodstream because the liver exclusively produces glucose under gluconeogenesis. So therefore, you know that the, the most sensitive thing for insulin is glucose. Us human beings weren't exposed genetically to a lot of fructose. Every now and then, a little bit of fruit in the winter, in the, in the, in the autumn or the fall. So our bodies aren't as commonly exposed to fructose. Now, in the modern era of massive amounts of fructose in our food, either the so-called natural food, and there's no such thing as natural fruit, 
all fruit has been all fruit has been hybridized. All fruit yeah. has been hybridized. And apple, if you ask Adam, and he's a good friend of mine, um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But it was a little sour thing like this if that happened yeah. in the Bible. Now it's this big thing. It's not full of nutrients. It's full of sugar. So the point is that our insulin system does not react to fructose as well as it does to glucose. It's not mm. triggered as high. So we could measure that in our human, in the, in the animal models and in humans, in the intact humans. But we saw fructose had the biggest injury because of that absence of that insulin response. And therefore, the injury, that, that diabesogenic injury to our blood vessels is greatest by fructose. There is, all sugars are natural. They're just a six-sided carbon molecule. There's slight changes for the three. There's no such thing as natural, unnatural stuff. But if you look at wheat, if you look at any of the grains, none of them are the way that our ancestors found on the plains of Africa. They've all been hybridized. And while hybridization is a process that is steered by humans, we did that to increase the caloric content of that food. Yeah, for bigger yield, right? Yeah. Bigger yield. And the bigger yeah. yield was sugar. Starch, mm-hmm. remember, is just a chain of sugar. So yeah. the bigger yield from farm products is primarily driven by its carbohydrate content. We don't we haven't we haven't for the most part hybridized things to increase plants to increase their protein content or their fat content. It has been primarily the sugar content. So if you look at a piece of grass on the felt, it's the seeds are tiny. You look at a piece of wheat, it's a big big thing like this, or a piece of corn, and, and that's sugar that we've added. It's not protein and fat. We haven't hybridized that. Now, when you look at our animals, we fatten them up. And, and ideally, the grass-fed things are going to have better muscle and better quality of fat. But we focus on fat and protein in our animals. But in the plants, we focus on increasing the carbohydrate content. And that's the issue. We've concentrated carbohydrates in our plants. There are very, very, very few plants that are truly the way nature made them without interference by humans. That's what's made us so successful as a species. But our own success is condemning us. Yeah. So that's well, the fructose that. story. So that's yeah. a myth. That's a myth. Yeah. And, and I've got the data. I've got the science, the evidence that proves yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Just a note on that. If if you do want to check out more stuff on, uh, on well, on Robert and fructose, uh, Gary Fetke, um, his site's called Fructose No, and he's done a lot of research on that. And then, yeah. you know, carb addiction doc. So let's talk about- you, just, let me just tell you, yeah. let me just tell you, the single best thing that people can do if they want to understand fruit is Google uh, on YouTube, Gary Fetke. He does just Google Gary Fetke fruit on YouTube. I use that for my patients because I can't say it as well as Gary does. He's <laughs> I just shout out to Gary. It is phenomenal. And he's a really good guy to watch. And, yeah. and he's like me, he's a surgeon, so he's not very smart. Um, yes, Gary, I said that about you. Uh, but we're not smart. That's why we operate. So we, we simplify it so people can understand it. Well, that, and, and you say that, but, but it's quite interesting because, you know, many, many surgeons and medical professionals uh, have been accused of having vested interest because they'll just, you know, like I've seen some shoulder guys who've said you've got to have an operation, but then I've had physios use rehab to fix my shoulder. You are a bariatric surgeon, and but you like to treat people without surgery. So that's a wide open question. That's not entirely true. <clears throat> surgery okay. is the single best, best way to mm-hmm. lose weight by far. Okay. Yeah. So 
the groups of people that benefit from weight loss surgery are enormous people who have struggled and failed many times to lose weight. And most of my patients, in fact, all of my patients are experts at failing weight loss programs. That's the first thing. And the second thing is people who are really sick. They've had bad cardiovascular disease. They're brittle diabetics. That's where surgery helps tremendously. It's basically the ultimate intermittent fasting, okay? Because the yeah. surgery stops you from eating for a period of time so your body can recover. The issue is that surgery as an isolated weapon is ineffective, just like diets are. Surgery is just a very powerful diet, okay? Mm. Very powerful, more effective diet. But there's a tandem thing that we have to do. We have to help people to understand and treat and address why they gained the weight in the first place, which I call their obesity. You can, you can treat being fat, but obesity is up here and surgery doesn't fix this. So it's a combined thing. And then we took it a step backwards and we said, okay, if we understand the cause of obesity as a behavioral problem, as an addiction, not a calorie or a nutrition problem, and it's a substance abuse problem, not a nutrition problem. Then if we coach those people and help them to understand that, a large percentage of people, when they have that aha moment, can address their way of life using addiction methodology, which is removal and replacement rather than just deprivation. And if they successfully treat their obesity, they don't need the surgery. But if they're struggling to do this, you can add the surgery in as a tool to help them. If you struggle uh, to quit smoking many times, the first thing your doctor is going to do is give you a nicotine patch or some Chantix to help you. It doesn't mean that the nicotine patch is automatically going to stop you from smoking. You don't whack it on and hope you quit smoking. You quit smoking and use it to deal with the cravings and to deal with the change for a period of time. That's how surgery should fit in. It is not an alternative. And I'll tell you the sad part, and I'm going to go out on a limb here because this is so important. There are people in South Africa, bariatric gods, surgical gods, that are so mistaken in their ideology of what the surgery does that to my mind, it is bordering on malpractice because to operate on someone to radically change their stomach without helping them to understand that they actually have an addiction and the surgery is going to treat your obesity, but it is not going to treat your addiction. That, to my mind, is malpractice. It was just ignorance way back, but we yeah. now know too much of this. And, and I, I would use that word specifically because in my practice, I see so many people that have had gastric bypass, duodenal switch, that are metabolic train wrecks hmm. because their doctor was focused on their weight, not their obesity. Yeah. And, and that is a disservice to somebody. I think that that is as much a disservice as if you come in with a left shoulder injury and they operate on your right shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, and that's fascinating. So, so for those watching, I'm sure they're trying to figure out, uh, we had this offline, you know, the, the, the difference between, um, you know, being a frequent, what dabbling and, and actually having a full blown problem, you know, how do you know if you're a, if you're a carb? So you're saying that we have a carb addiction or a food addiction. How do you Correct. know? No, not definitely not food. Nobody's addicted to food. Nobody's addicted to food. And I, all these people say, oh, it's this, it's junk food because it's the fat and the, well, you know what, if I'm going to drink a whiskey and I add a bit of water to my whiskey or I bit, uh, add a, a little bit of soda water uh, to, my, to my whiskey to make it more tolerable, it wasn't the water that made me drunk. Mm. Okay. Fat doesn't make people fat. 
it is sugar. And if you add fat to sugar, it makes it more tasty. But it wasn't the fat that made people fat. And there are a lot of people out there, oh, it's food, it's junk, it's not. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God and nature is trying to kill us with our food. But but let's face it, we got COVID for that. So uh, they don't need to use our food to kill us. COVID's doing a pretty good job of that. Uh, The point that I'm making is that human biology and, and... Tim Noakes was my professor of physiology. That's where I go back to. He taught me this. Um, Human biology is all about feedback. It's all about negative feedback. So for every action, you've got an equal and opposite reaction that controls it. Okay? And it controls it very tightly. It's not boom, boom. It's like a little ripple. That's the best way the body controls it. It's called homeostasis. Mm. And homeostasis is, in effect, it's developed over eons of, of evolution for things that are vital to human survival. So therefore, it is impossible to overdrink water to the point of harm. Your body won't let you. Right. Just every kid, every child has tried to hold its breath to the point that they pass out. And very few, if any, kids ever pass out when they're holding their breath because the human body won't allow you to. It's Unless you're in the water, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you can always yeah, find yeah. a caveat, but no, if you just sit there and try to hold your breath, your body won't allow you to hold your breath. It, it is because it's protecting itself. And that is because oxygen and, and water are vital to human survival. Well, alcohol is not vital to human survival. So therefore, there is no negative feedback. Now, puking and passing out isn't feedback. That's toxicity. So for a drug, something that is not vital to human survival, um, there is no feedback. And then secondly, there is powerful incentive to overconsume. If alcohol didn't give you a buzz, nobody would drink alcohol. But nobody's addicted to O'Doul's, which is the alcohol-free beer in, in, in uh, America. Um, but the point is that you chase the buzz, and that's a positive feedback cycle. The more you drink, the more buzz you get, and therefore you have to impose conscious limitations on that. And we call those conscious limitations numbers of drinks or ounces of alcohol. Well, when it comes to carbohydrates, there is no biological necessity for an adult human being to eat carbohydrates because the liver produces it. A fetus and a young child, a baby, has to have carbohydrates. But after about one to two years of age, that equation goes away. We need it for brain development uh, along with fat. Um, But eventually that goes away. As an adult, you don't need to eat carbohydrates. The liver produces them. So therefore, there is no feedback system that stops us from overeating them. But we human beings are smart. We created a mathematical formula to quantify how much it's safe to eat. And that mathematical formula, and by the way, the body doesn't do math. It's called calories and portions. Yes. Calories are the mathematical formula we've designed to control something that has no biologic control. (laughs) <laughs> and we are we are educated to decide to preempt how much we think we need and then we finish it whether we need it to or not okay that's demand eating so uh, and that's because there is no feedback for carbohydrates so therefore you can and the other thing about carbohydrates just like alcohol they cause you an instant high mm. when you've had a rough day you're not rushing home for broccoli but you are rushing home for some ice cream or having a Coke. It's part of your relaxation, identical to alcohol. So therefore, there is positive incentive to overeat. And because the body doesn't restrict, you can overeat. And over time, that causes harm. So use is where you use it for pleasure. If I come home after a long day and I have a glass of wine, that's use, very healthy. It's like eating an apple after a long day. No issue there. But if I come home and... 
I've had a rough day and I'm depressed and I drink a bottle of wine and I get hammered. That's not great, but it's okay. That's abuse. If I come home and I pig out on a whole tub of ice cream once, that's abuse. But yeah. my system can tolerate abuse every now and then, and no harm has come of that. If I come home and I'm drinking, or I've created a habit uh, in my life where I'm using alcohol to deal with all of my emotions, and now I'm not just dissipating those emotions, I'm using that like a, like a cricket bat or like a baseball bat to numb, soothe, and obliterate all of my emotions. Over time, that habituated use starts to cause harm. Now I'm getting arrested for driving while I'm drunk. I'm starting to get liver disease. I lose my job. When harm accumulates because of your relationship with a substance that you're using to manage your emotional needs, that means, and, you, and if you recognize that harm and you say, man, I had a DUI, I've got to stop drinking, that's okay. That's severe abuse. But if you ignore the DUI and you distort the reality of it, to continue the relationship. That relationship is out of control, that's addiction. So addiction is quantified by harm that is ignored or where you, where you develop the sophisticated system of distorting the reality of the harm to continue the relationship. And, and I'll give you an example. At least here in the US, I'm not sure about South Africa, we've got these awful warnings on cigarette packs. Yes. That don't yeah, smoke and you've got these black lungs and things like that. So you've got to be oblivious to that warning if you're going to say, you know what, that's not going to happen to me. Here, I need the cigarette. Yeah. I'll you know, it's, <laughs> right. Every, so I use the phrase that addicts are immune to risk. If you knew, if you believed that you might turn blue and die, you're probably not going to roll up your sleeve and inject heroin. But we're oblivious. That's not going to happen to me. Yeah. And Whenever you're eating that ice cream or that chocolate or that apple, yes, I said an apple, people, you don't believe that it's going to make you fat, sick, or, uh, um, or give you diabetes or a heart attack. But the reality is the most likely form of your death pre-COVID, and actually including, now, here's what I'm saying today, which I didn't say a few weeks ago, including COVID, the most likely cause of death is due to sugar. Insert disclaimer, Dr. Savas's highly educated opinion. <laughs> I'm happy to say that, but yeah, there's, yeah. Enough, there's enough evidence now yeah. that if you just look at, forget about what I said about the mechanics and, the, and, the, and that's going to be worked out more. That's more just a process. But if you look at the most likely people to die of COVID, mm. apart from the very old, are the obese, the diabetic and the cardiovascular, the metabolic diseases. Those are sugar related. Those are directly related to insulin resistance. So you know what? I still stand by that statement is that yeah. if you die of COVID, the most likely reason, foundational reason is sugar. Okay. And by the way, the comments are just saying like loving your explanation. So, so, the, so we've got use, abuse and, and addiction and, but, but like, what are we supposed to do? Because the entire world is basically a, a carbohydrate superstore. You know, what, what, do you, what do you tell your, your patients? Well, if you think about it, in the 1950s and 60s, everybody smoked. I remember even in the 1970s or early 80s, as a medical student on rounds, um, I remember my professor of pulmonology, which is so ironic, was a chain smoker. Um, so we'd go on rounds, we'd see 10 patients, and then we'd stop between wards for a smoke break. 
why we were treating people with lung cancer from smoking. And it was like the dystopian uh, uh, side of that. So, you know, now what we do is we sit around discussing sick people over a, a 12 pack of donuts. It's mm. no different. And I'm, we're going to laugh about this, sadly, after billions of people have died in 20 years' time. But that's the reality. So you're right. It is pervasive in our community. And the people mm. that should know the most don't, which is doctors. And in the 1950s, there were plenty of doctors that said smoking was fine. In fact, most doctors choose Chesterfield was a famous advertisement for Chesterfield cigarettes promoted by physicians. Okay. Uh, most, most doctors prefer Krispy Kreme donuts. Okay. Um, so... What can we do about it? Society in our lifetime is not going to do anything about it. The incentives, the politics, the economics, the desire by people is too great for us to change. Despite what we know about cigarettes, in 2020, you can still buy them freely. Yeah. Okay? So even with smoking, our society's turned against it to a certain extent. You can still buy cigarettes, but it ultimately is up to the individual. And the first step of addiction is something called ownership. If you look at the way people successfully treat addiction, there's a process of going from pre-contemplation, I don't have the problem, to contemplation that you have the problem, to saying, okay, well, planning and preparation for how I'm going to deal with it, and then jumping into action. A diet, you give someone a diet, they start tomorrow. If you look, by the time you're fat or diabetic, the problem is so pervasive in your life, it affects every aspect of your waking day. No different yeah. than smoking, okay? Uh, smokers always thinking about a cigarette. They've got their little paraphernalia. It, it's, a, it's not just the act of smoking. It's not just the nicotine. It's the whole relaxation, emotional relaxation of the act. It's a ritual. Yeah. And accessing carbohydrates is the same. So you cannot, I, I, the way I use this is, you cannot eat the elephant in one bite. And if you yeah. give someone a keto diet, they choke on the elephant because they want to go carnivore tomorrow. The yeah. body doesn't work that way. So not only physiologically does the body not work that way, your mind cannot tolerate that deprivation. It took you a long time to get here. If you take little bites of the elephant every day, okay, um, eventually you solve the problem. And addiction is managed by removal and replacement because everything that may now cause you harm had a positive purpose before. Mm. So carbohydrates may have had a positive purpose, but now they've caused you harm. So you've got to replace the positive purpose, which is typically the nutritional aspect, the return to nutritional eating, real food, and also replace the emotion management void. If you don't replace, you're going to relapse. So just to clarify, you're saying that uh, obviously we need, you know, if you're not going to eat pizza, and some people are asking, you know, what do you eat without carbs? vegetables, uh, green leafy veg and stuff, but you're uh, saying that you're saying that um, people would generally eat the ice cream, for instance, to, to experience joy and then to soothe an emotional need. And you're saying they need to develop new ways to experience joy, essentially. Well, the, the issue, and, and it's, it's so much deeper. I'm really touching on superficially. And this is what I do when people, when my patients contact me is we first have to figure out everybody, everybody has as a child, an opportunity to develop what I call effort-based emotion management systems, where when you put effort into something, that effort uh, um, over to, let's say you go for a walk, just a, a stroll. You take your dog out for a walk like I did at five o'clock this morning, take my dog out for a poop. My brain is relaxing while he's, the walk is not about exercise. Mm physical activity. It's more for my relaxation. My body's relaxing, my brain's relaxing, but because there's a time component 
to that walk, my brain relaxes. It's kind of a meditative experience so that during that walk, I can connect with and process some of the issues that are hidden in my subconscious, the issues that are driving my anxiety and my depression, my anger and my fear and my all that emotional tension. So by the time I come back from the walk, I'm relaxed. There's my dog. He's <laughs> sorry. I'm relaxed, number one. And number two is I've connected with and processed one of the issues or some of the issues that are driving my emotional tension. Plus, there's pride in the fact that I went for the walk, which raises my self-esteem and my self-confidence. So an effort-based emotion management system is extremely effective at not only dissipating the emotion, but helping to solve the problem that initiated the emotion. Okay, when I come home and I eat a tub of ice cream or I eat a pile of mashed potatoes, it may give me an instant high, instant reward that obliterates my emotional tension. But on the back end, there's negativity, harm and guilt and repression of the issues that cause the emotion. So it's a very dysfunctional way. Addiction is a very dysfunctional way of taking care of your emotions. And then you feel all upset that you did something bad and what makes you feel better, more of the same. So both by uh, uh, mentally, psychologically, as well as physiologically, you're chasing more. So it is a positive cycle that causes harm. And and the, the issue then is everybody, every child gets taught how to paint and draw, gets, uh, learns how to read or, or, to, uh, or gets storytelling. Every child is physically active and runs around whether they're uh, uh, in a formal sport or not. They all have opportunities to develop effective emotion management systems. The question is, which family styles do not? Yeah. And it is about parenting because the way we raise a child is not by telling them what to do. We raise a child by being the person you want them to be. And if you have, as an adult, a vulnerability to addictive behavior, your child learns that from you. Who does? People that are raised in a permissive family or people that are raised in an authoritarian family. Two completely opposite sides that come to the middle where there's a vulnerability to addictive behavior. People that are raised in a permissive family have a lack of structure. So they may have the intent to take the dog for a walk because they're distressed. But when they come home, I've got to take the dog for a walk. Well, you know what? I'm just going to have one shot of whiskey to relax me, to calm my nerves before I go for a walk. Half an hour later, the whiskey bottle's empty. You've passed out on the couch. The walk never happened. Mm. So you default, you triangulate to an easy, inanimate way of taking care of your emotions. And you don't put the effort in so you don't get the reward of pride. On the other side are the, are the uh, uh, people that come from an authoritarian brand, where no matter how much effort they put in, it wasn't good enough. Right. So they may go for a walk or a run, and they believe they should have gone for an hour and run 10 miles. But it started raining halfway through, so they ran for half an hour, and it was only five miles. And instead of feeling great about the fact they went for the run, they feel like crap because it wasn't long enough or far enough. They're perfectionists. So they never, ever attain the ridiculous expectation they set of themselves. So the pride in the effort is irrelevant because of this gap between effort and expectation of perfection. And that gap is set, filled with a sense of failure that is very erosive to your self-esteem. So the permissives never build it up. Authoritarians vote it all the time. And therefore, they triangulate to an inanimate thing to make them feel better. 
And that is whatever that substance is, that's the issue. So before you can say, okay, well, take away the carbohydrates and go for a walk, you've got to put yourself in a position where you actually benefit from the walk. Because yeah. there's a lot of people out there, a lot of fat people out there that are exercising like crazy. Because somebody said either it was calories or even if they understand it's to relax my mind so that I don't need ice cream to do that. But if you can't benefit from it, it has no value. Mm. If, you, if, if alcohol didn't make you drunk, nobody would drink. So for a lot of people, physical activity is useless to them because they don't get the benefit that you may get from it. I, I be, you've, you've been on a run once in your life, am I right? A couple. <laughs> How do you feel when you get back? Yeah, it's like my favorite high. That's what it's I like, Okay, so you use that yeah. word. It's a yeah. high. And that's what other people get from a tub of ice cream or a bottle of wine because they can't yeah. get it from the run. And that's exactly so that, that's exactly the point. But yeah, even so a runner can overrun. Yeah, totally. So to just sorry, we're running out of time. And sure. I mean, you know, we should have a sequel because there are lots of questions we haven't answered yet. So but just to wrap that part up, what it sounds to me like what you're saying is that the roots of because to just bring it back to COVID and the obesity epidemic and everything, you know, the 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 obese type two diabetics are highly susceptible. And if I understand what you're saying, you're saying that it's this combination of of poor, did you say effort-based emotional management? So we right. don't learn how to do that. And that's like right. the typical family who comes home, they watch Netflix and they order a pizza. That is like at the at the core, really, of, of the obesity epidemic. Well, but that's the, those are the permissives. On the other side, you have people who do really the right thing but don't benefit from it. Right. They're never okay. good enough. So it, it's the amazing part. And, and, for example, we talked about Oprah being a, a drug addict. Oprah mm. comes from a highly authoritarian family. She's been incredibly productive. Mm. But... She, if you ask Oprah, Oprah, I mean, everybody's in praise of Oprah mm. about how well she's done, what a great person she is. And if you ask her that, she'll continuously criticize her. She'll focus on what she hasn't done. Mm. You can give Oprah a lump of gold with a little scratch on it and she'll say, no, thank you because of the scratch. And that's just, I come from an authoritarian family background myself where our parents wanted us to be super successful. So they created ridiculous expectations of us, but we never, ever met them. So we were forced to look at what we didn't do rather than yeah. love what we did do. And if you're just continuously looking at how bad you are, you have no idea how good you are, and there's no self-esteem and self-confidence, and then you need something else to make you feel better. And that's the dichotomy. Yeah, the, the family, the, the happy fat family that orders the pizza, they're obvious, okay? <laughs> but but let's, let's, take, let's take Tim Noakes. Okay, Tim is a highly authoritarian person like myself, very structured, just a great man, but he got type 2 diabetes. And it wasn't just because he believed that sugar was better for him. Yeah. It was also because that sugar made him feel good when he had to keep on driving himself to do better all the time. And that's what makes him a good, humble person when he's being productive. But in our personal life, we've got to look at that side of things as well. And I know in my own life, no matter how well I do things, I'm still too focused on what I didn't do. But to come back to the COVID thing and to tie the two things together, addiction and COVID, one of the issues and, and one of the, the easiest ways to look at this is something called the serenity prayer that every alcoholic or every recovering alcoholic is aware of. Because alcoholics aren't aware that they're alcoholics. But it is, the, and we all know it, it is the uh, God grant me the serenity 
to know the things I can control, uh, to understand and, and do the things I can't control. And when it comes to COVID, you, you, you're not going to be able to control effectively over time the fact mm-hmm. that you're going to get the disease. We're pretty much all going to be exposed to it. Um, most human beings that, that interact with other people are going to be exposed to it. So yeah. that's the part we can't control. The part we can control is the most likely uh, uh, um, possibility of severity of disease. Yeah. Which is, to a certain extent, viral load, as we talked about. So don't go and lean in without a mask on in front of people that have got the disease. Don't let them cough on you. But the second part is control your internal environment by getting rid of sugar and give yourself the best possible chance of not getting severe disease. And and that is control what you can control, which is your consumption of sugar, and let the chips fall where they may once you get it. Well, that's great. I think we'll we'll wrap it up on that note. Uh, just for those of you who are watching, please, if you think anyone would benefit from seeing this, you know, um, share it. If you have a question, pop a comment in there. I see there's lots of activity going on there. Like and share. Um, please go and check out carbaddiction dot doc. It's just uh, carbaddiction carb dot on YouTube and YouTube. Um, Instagram. Yeah, and Instagram. And yeah, Robert, it's great to chat to you again. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, John. Just can I just shout one other thing? Yep. Uh, we've just launched this. My wife is currently pregnant. Yes. And she's the, she's the carb addiction mom. So we're doing a whole series on a ketogenic way of handling pregnancy and early childhood. And it's an experiment because we believe and we have the science and the evidence to to understand that a ketogenic, low-carb, high-fat approach is the best way to feed mom and then baby. But I don't know that for, you know, we're doing the experiment. So come along and, and, and see. I may be completely wrong. I don't think I am. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. But ultimately, and, and don't, don't condemn me for doing an experiment, but it really is. All the evidence is there to say that a ketogenic diet is the best way to prevent autism, to be the healthiest for that baby. And we can discuss autism at some other stage. So, But we're working this through. My wife is 24 weeks pregnant right now. Follow that journey. And that's also Carb Addiction Doc and Carb Addiction Mom on Instagram and on YouTube. Awesome. Cool. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. And yeah, have a great week. And good luck with the rest of everything that's happening in the US. Thanks very much, Jonah. Thanks for uh, having me on. Cool. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to join the Supper Heroes community, please get onto Facebook and join the Facebook group. That is the Supper Heroes Facebook group. For more information on me, follow me on Facebook, the Jono Proudfoot. Follow me on Instagram at Jono Proudfoot. Check out my website, www.jonoproudfoot.com. And if you're interested in taking my online keto course or getting online keto coaching, check out realmealrevolution.com. Please follow and download. We're out to change the world and you can be a part of it. See you next week.